a dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle Alright Take two I am your turbo monk, Geraint Jones um, Forgot to press record, didn't I? Well, <laughs> me and Nev, me and Nev recording. Um, I was just and I just started off as well by basically saying like, "Don't complain about the all the equality and stuff today." Nev's on the other side of the world. I am, I am many things, but good with technology is is not one of them, um, as we've just discovered. Um, please do bear with equality today. We're back in the studio for the next few episodes, but the only way that me and Nev could like get schedules kind of linked up, what with him being thirteen hours a ahead is is a uh, recording at this kind of time of night so um and as much as like peter from audio cafe is very accommodating i don't really think it'd be very fair to ask him to open the studio at 10 o'clock um at night over here but now good to see you again mate it's good to be back it's good to be back man i'm uh yeah well rested bit of a hangover but who cares bit of a hangover oh what, what from what was the tipple of choice oh it was uh, a bit of uh, i think it was brandy and maybe gin later on Nothing serious. Mm. I saw, um, mate, like, I, I'll say this, right? Obviously, advertising definitely works because I was watching a cookery program yesterday and the commercial was for uh, responsible, like, Rocco, Rocco gin. Okay. And I didn't want to drink before I watched that TV program. And then I saw that gin and I was like, I really do want some of that gin right now. Um, so, it, well, it's just because it's, it's always a question, isn't it? It's like, is it ethical to advertise things like gambling, um, alcohol? Mm. Um, because it definitely gets you, mate. Like, do you, do you ever watch, um, do you ever watch Narcos, the TV show? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a, an, an episode, one or two, yeah. Mm. So, I've been watching that recently, mate, and um. Believe it or not, it's not making me want to do cocaine. Um, but smoking, like a lot of the a lot of the characters smoking it, and I'm like, fucking, I could really go for a fag. Yeah. Really go for a fag at the moment. I mean, I do. I have smoke like occasionally, like socially and stuff, but I don't smoke on okay. a regular basis, mate. But watching this TV show, I'm like, fuck, oh, they look so cool. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost like Picky Blinders. Everyone in there smokes every every ten seconds. You know, it's, it makes you want to. Well, I think I can go get a you know get a cigarette and have a drag or two. And I get it. it's it's under like at the end of the day they're trying to make a a realistic portrayal of the period, but yeah. at the same time I'm like, could you producers really cut down on this? Because <laughs> I'm like, and this is where I, I'm lucky. I live in the countryside, mate, because it, it's a bit of a mission. You, I'd have like a ten minute period in the car where I probably come to my senses and be like, oh no, just I don't really want yeah. cigarettes. And, and what what kind of like area are you living in? Are you out in the? Because obviously you're down in New Zealand now. What, I am yeah, living on the North Island, uh, an hour's drive south from Auckland. So it's a nice sort of big town. Well, it's 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 Hamilton, Hamilton City, but uh, yeah, it's still a nice small town. Um, not too busy. Um, I live in a nice um, area. I mean, the neighbours not really that on top of you. Like some areas where if you stand in your shower and you put your arm out through the window, you can high five your neighbour when he's in his shower. So luckily, it's not that close. But uh, it's it's a it's a good area. Uh, the kids they they they've got their school around the corner, so they can walk to school or bike to school. Um, I'm not going to complain, man. I've I've um, I've got it uh, easy over here, you know. Well, you've lived in a few different countries now. How do they kind of yeah. stack up against each other? Oh, um, it depends on the culture, depends on the people. Uh, the likes of the UK when I got there, the, um, up north. 
different from London. London, they're in your face, all over the place, loads of people. Um, you go over to, say, Belfast, again, different, laid back, relaxed, uh, cultures, different, the, uh, the accent. Oh, man, that's, um, I, I won't forget, you know. Um, and over here, again, it's, uh, it's very much like living back in South Africa, minus all the crime. So what do you mean by that? Just is, is it like, because um, I've heard people say about New Zealand that it's kind of like what Britain used to be in the sense of like kind of community and that kind of thing. Yeah, it is. They're friendly. Yeah, they're helpful community-wise. You know, they still have those um, certain areas where on the corner of the road, uh, you'll find this little tuck shop and, um, you know, they have the, the money box there and you can take what you want and you pay and leave your change or take your change. You know, the... Um, that type of system, you know, friendly people, um, nice, relaxed. And the further you go out of their cities, it's, it's more relaxed, you know, it's mm -hmm. a small town. Uh, no, it's a great place. Again, they love the sports, they love the rugby, the crickets, mm -hmm. the outdoor stuff, budgie jump, um, different from, from the UK. You come across many people there that have moved there. Or is it mostly people who have kind of grown up around the area? Uh, there's a few that's moved across. Yeah, there, there's loads of South Africans living here that's migrated or immigrated across and are living here uh, with their families. Um, a few Brits, a um, couple of Americans. So the, you do find them over here, but mm -hmm. not that, that, that many, like you would say, for example, uh, in the UK, in London. In yeah. London, you know, there's a big variety of, of different cultures. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's like... You know, people, when, you know, if I meet somebody in America, they're like, oh, you're from, I've been to London or whatever. And you're thinking like, well, all right, cool. Yeah, it's on the same island, but really it just couldn't be any different than, like it couldn't be yeah. any different to like a small town in, well, not a small town, but like a normal sized town in, in England or yeah, Wales yeah. or something. I mean, London is like, this is, you know, like London has more in common with New York than it has in, the, with, in common with the rest of the country. As, you mm. know, like that's, that's, that's kind of how it goes. So like places like that. Um, so, mate, last time you were on, we, we had to chat about your service, um, Northern Ireland, yeah, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, let's talk a bit about um, how it was you came to decide to leave the military first and foremost. And then we'll talk about what you kind of got up to in, in the in the following years. Um, I think for me, things back then uh, when we when I left Afghan, it was in I think April. May, I think it was, in 2007, we got back to Cyprus. And it was at that stage where I just felt off. I just felt something needs to change. And, and um, luckily, uh, if, um, another officer said to me, listen, yeah, there's a posting opening up for you. If you want to go and do recruiting for the Army, a two-year posting. And I did that. And I think that was my saving grace. Um, and then the battalion went through the different changes I, I wasn't happy with. And then I thought, listen, I need to move out. I need to leave the army, uh, leave all the shooting, all the bombs and all that. And then um, a very good friend of mine said he was going to go and do a close protection course um, in Erefit. And I should come with. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm leaving all that shit behind. I'm not going to do it. And he said, well, just come over with me. It's an open day. You sit there. They explain what it is. And if you want, you can sign up. And, or if you don't, don't do it. But he was going to go do it. And... Long story short, at the end of that open day, um, I had my deposit down. I paid, I think, 500 pounds it was for a space on the course. And I did the course, the CP course. It was with, uh, I think, Phoenix back then. And, um, yeah, um, I passed the course. I got offered a contract with uh, G4S, 
and he got offered well in Iraq, and he got offered a contract with Chief Boys in uh, in Afghan, in Kabul. And um, I thought, yeah, so much for leaving all the shooting, all the guns, and all that. And I went and I'd done the contract life uh, for a bit. So you kind of really glossed over there the fact that you wanted to get away from the bombs and the shooting and stuff. So I'm not going to let you get skate over that that easily, mate. Um, <laughs> what was what was that then? Was that just a sense of um, you didn't want to be away from family, or, or or was it more of a you know you you were just generally burnt out? I think burnout and also the fact that all the bullshit that comes with the army, you know, um, treating you like a kid. And I just had enough. I thought, just it's time to move on. But when I went to the open day and I sat there and for the first time in ages, you know, you felt like they, um, that they, uh, they want you to be there and they, they were treating you like an adult. And I thought, this is totally different. This total different environment. And I knew, I think we all knew sitting there, because volunteer, I volunteered to be there, that, that with that contract life, you know, comes a big risk. People actively, were well, kind of actively trying to sort of take you out, you know, but um, I liked it. And there was that certain connection. I thought, I'm going to go for it. It's an opportunity I can't say no to. And plus the fact when I served the last two years, I don't think my mind was in the right place. Um, it was probably good that I'd done the two-year recruiting uh, posting because when I came back from Africa and there were time in Cyprus where I just wasn't myself it came to a point where uh, I knew listen yes yeah, something's got to change and, uh, and, I, and I'm happy it did what were the changes that you didn't like in the battalion you mentioned ah it's more bullshit you know you've, you've done three All tours right. okay. and they treat you like kids um, just you know um, if, if you're not doing something the, the way they want you to do something in camp, you know, they, they just hound you for it or they just beast you for it, you know. But I think we were, you know, veterans. We've been in the battalion for a while now and I just had enough of all the little bullshit. Is it fair to say that if it wasn't for the bullshit, you would have stayed in the army for, for longer? Yeah. Yeah. And this, mate, it, to me, is one of the biggest tragedies of the army is the... I would say like the kind of like senior private junior NCO, like the brain drain that kind of goes on there with like, cause a lot of guys that are senior ranks, they're like, they'll stick it out. Cause it's like, all right, I've got another eight years or whatever. Fuck it. You know, plus they, you know, it's on that level of money, a bit more money, but um, it's just so many lads just leave like good senior boards, junior NCOs mm. just leave. Cause they're just like, I love the job. I just want to be treated like an adult. And yeah. um, I don't know, mate, what you think of this idea and stuff, but I've thought before, like, because I understand that, like, a lot of regiments, you have to have bullshit because, unfortunately, young lads a lot of time need it because otherwise they'll, they'll be a mess. But I've just thought about, like, you know, Napoleon, like, you look like someone out of the old guard at the moment with that tash going on, mate. But Napoleon <laughs> had the young guard and the old guard. Mm. And the old guard was veterans. And yeah. you could be a private soldier, but you'd serve through all these campaigns and stuff. And I think it'd be fucking great if the British Army had like literally a couple of be- like some veteran battalions where I'm not talking like fucking dad's army, but just where like, right, I'm 28 years old. I, I don't want to be a, a, you know, I don't I have no aspirations to become a senior NCO or anything. I'll go to the veterans battalion where it's just like squared away, just squared away blokes and everyone's. Almost like a just giant recce platoon, really, I suppose. I mean, because I know, like, look, obviously there is the SF route for people, but 
you know, the SF route comes with an entirely different lifestyle of ops, 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 training, 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 training. Um, and that's not for everybody. And not that everybody could make the standard, even if it was for anybody, because obviously they know it's special for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know, mate, like, I don't know what, what you think is an idea like that, because, you know, people say, well, you know, it's just pie in the sky, it'll never happen. But like, look, the army, you know, the army's changed a lot over the last couple of hundred years. And I don't see why things like this aren't a possibility. Yeah, I think it's a good idea, the fact, because then you would retain more, more personnel. You know, because uh, for the last couple of years, I served with the recce. I was in fire support battalion, and, and, and I thought at that stage, they would treat you differently, you know. Uh, it was great, yeah, we all had a, our own room in, in, in the block, you know. Um, and I, I felt like it was a good tribe within recce platoon. A really good, strong bond, you know, which I served in the with them in, the, in my second um, Iraq tour and in Afghan. And when we got back, the bullshit was still there. And um, I think I thought I came to a stage where uh, I had enough. I'm, I'm going to stop putting up with this, with this bullshit, you know. And, yeah, I think having that where you've got a veteran battalion and you haven't got the bullshit. And I do agree with having the, the young lads. You need to get them in line. They, they, they need to learn because when you go into battalion life on, on ops, it's different. You've got to have the discipline. Otherwise, you're screwed, you know. You have to have, the, have that discipline. You know, yeah, I think it's a good idea. I think as well, mate, with veteran battalions, what they would be really good for is um, ops like what you just had in um, Afghanistan with the airlift. Like, mm. you know, that, that's the kind of op where you're not fucking tabbing long distances and stuff. You're not, you, you know, you're not clearing enemy positions, but you need blokes that can think on their feet. You need guys that are a bit maybe... Um, like, that they, they have um, a bit more humanity about them and you know a lot of the army's ops are peacekeeping ops like you know you and me we've been mm. of the generation where we've done um uh, iraq and afghanistan but let's not fit let's not forget what was kind of before there bosnia's kosovo's northern islands you know all these kind of uh, peacekeeping ops and i just mm. think like you know that that would be to me like if you if you are um if you're some fucking village that's been going through hell in the last year or two in some kind of horrible you know, ethnic cleansing or something. I think they'd much rather a blo- like a, a unit with an average age in the late twenties turns up rather than or like you know around the kind of thirty mark and the twenty mark because you might have your own kids. You just you 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 have more kind of life experience and I think it's the same thing with with cops, mate. You know, like your dad was a cop, right? Yeah. There's a big difference between like when you see like a 20 something year old cop and a 30 something year old cop, like a lot of the time, the behavior is very different from them. It's just yeah. part of life, isn't it? I All right. Okay. So, so you're, you're going on the circuit then, mate. What was it like yeah. going out to, um, to Iraq then as a civilian rather than as a soldier? Cause you went out there 2005, was it right? 2005, 2006? Um, no, it's, uh, 2000 and, and 10 it was 2010 oh sorry i meant when you went to iraq as, as a soldier oh iraq yeah as a soldier yeah. It was yeah the first was in 2005 i went over to, to iraq um and again in 2006 and afghan was in 2007 mm. so how 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 was the difference like how did you see the difference between not just the not just going as a soldier compared to going as a civilian contractor but also like did you see a difference in the country at that point with obviously five years in between your visits um yes um at that stage, I think the, the Americans were at that stage were planning to, to, to pull out. Um, a lot has changed in the sense of 
um, more power was, was given to the local authorities, the local uh, Iraqi army. Um, I'm not sure if they had an air force left at that stage. Uh, Iraqi police, a lot of the checkpoints they had up there was, again, in their control. You know, so you were at their mercy. Um, whether you can get through or not, or you can bribe your way through. Um, and again, a lot of units yeah, pulled back and operated from, from their bases. You know, they've, they've, they've done their normal uh, patrols and all that, mostly the, uh, the Americans. Um, I haven't seen any, any Brits at that stage doing any patrols or driving around, just mostly the, the Americans you know, at that stage. But yeah, again, a lot of uh, power was given to them. I think at that stage, the uh, UK and America believe that they've done enough in the sense of training, instru- instructing, and guiding them. And yeah, so all the power, all the control was then handed over to them in the sense of, you know, all the police and, and, and the army. So what kind of like jobs would you be doing out there? Uh, the first one was um, I went to Al Hilla and we had a bunch of, it was a massive, um, well, there's actually one road that closed down and there are all these villas on the opposite side. And then they built like a, a, a wall or a fence around those um, big villas. And we had American uh, contractors there. Uh, it was a selection of uh, teachers, lawyers, doctors, and then you get the, the local um, lawyers and doctors where they come into our sort of um, camp. And then those uh, clients would then teach them how to be better at their job. So the American lawyers, civilians would then teach the locals and help them and guide them and do courses for those local Iraqi doctors or lawyers or teachers, you know. So the predominantly was done within that camp um, and or we would then um, escort them uh, on the outskirts or to the local school or to the local um, lawyer company where you're Iraqi lawyers. And then we would just provide protection for them and get them in a vehicle, have a, a convoy of four or five vehicles, have your TL, your team leader, your 2IC, all the bots, all the shooters. Uh, but the drivers were all local nationals as opposed to sort of any other contracts, if it was a diplomatic contract or the embassy or expat heavy, no local nationals. But at that um, time, yeah, all the local uh, nationals, yeah, they were drivers. Again, a local national heavy yeah, in, in the team. How, how did you find it working with um, Iraqis like side by side? Because I'm, I'm assuming that was probably wasn't something you did that closely on your tours. Yeah. Um, for me, it was, it was nothing big. It was nothing odd. Um, I was used to, um, you know, working with other nationals, um, people from different cultures, the same work when I grew up in South Africa. And I had a, yeah, the, the minority white people and the majority black people. But within the majority black people, different tribes. Within South Africa alone, you've got 11 official languages. You know, yes, you've got your Afrikaans in English, but the rest is all tribal. Depending which area from the country you're from, you know, then you would learn that tribal language. So for me, it, it was no great deal, no, um, no awkwardness between them. Yes, we, um, or, they, or the company made sure that they were obviously vetted, that they don't walk on site and they start blasting, killing away contractors, you know. But um, they would, you know, trade well. Uh, or the company made sure that they were paid well, um, fed well, and that they also stayed, uh, some of them and uh, sometimes stayed on base as well. But otherwise, it, it was no issue. Um, what was kind of like, you know, I'm asking you to mind read the bit, you might, but maybe they talked about it was, did you kind of get a sense of like, what was motivating them to do the job? Like, was it money or was it like a, 
you know, like more kind of like a, an idealistic kind of thing or a bit of a combination? I would say combination, but mostly the money and the fact that they could um, do a, a better job. And the fact that I think for most of them, it was a way into the States. Oh, okay. Uh, what's like what's happening now, you know, with the Afghan withdrawal, they were obviously trying to get a lot of the interpreters, a lot of the uh, personnel that worked with the Americans and the Brits on, um, on, on various operations, you know, help them to get into either the UK or American. I think for them, like for example, my last two contracts, my, my driver, he's now living in, in America um, and he's living a happy life, you know, with his family, you know, far better than what he would have had in, um, in Baghdad. Mate, you know what fucking pisses me off? You and me What's like that? to move to America. We can't get a green card. It's like, I feel like, hey, America, we, know, fought, we fought in your wars. Can we please go? <laughs> yeah, where's my green card? You know, so I can go to Venice Beach, live that dream, go to Gold's Gym, train where Arnie trained. You know, yeah, it, 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 it pisses me off. But at the time, you know, I think I'm doing good. I'm on this job. I'm getting good money. I've got, I've got great money, you know, as opposed to them. Um, but yeah, and, and then looking back to what's, what's been occurring or, or, or what happened the last couple of months, you know, with them just jumping on the plane, off you go. You can now live um, in the States and use your green card. So yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, they're, they'd argue to be like, well, we're not under such a high chance of being murdered here. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, if that's what it takes, I can piss some people off and, and, and get myself, <laughs> get myself greenlit. Um, when, when you mentioned like the money and stuff like that, when you were out there, mate, was, was, was it kind of, cause um, obviously there was this, the days in, in Iraq where the money was insane. What kind of like, what kind of money, if you don't, if you're all open to talking about it, was it, was it big money days or, or what was it like? Um, I think back then, Nothing like the, the peak, nothing like um, between 2003 and 2006. But um, some of the lower end companies would start to shoot us on 250 a day. That's your low end, you know, 250 American dollars tax free a day. Your two RC would get anywhere from, say, 350 a day upwards. Um, and you've got your um, or, or the contract managers and country managers, they would obviously get a lot more. So if, you, if you're doing office job, you don't go on, on any ops you get a lot more, but with that comes more responsibility. But, but some of the team leaders on some of these contracts, they were earning, you know, um, five, five fifty a day, you know, tax free upwards. Um, but for me at that stage, it was a way in and once you're in, uh, as you might know, all the good jobs get uh, advertised in country, you know, they don't really advertise it. You know, it goes by word of mouth, you know, I blokes, they would be in the team for a while and then they would just walk across the road and there's another compound with a different, uh, group working there you just swap t-shirts and then you'll, you'll get better money but your money was good to, um, to start with yeah it was really good especially if it's tax-free and you're there for nine weeks you're not going to buy much you know you might yeah. go, to, go to the American PX and buy some protein and, and, and creatine and pre-workout you know and train in their gyms um, and, and eat in their um, defect otherwise um, you just save man so where, where were you living at the time were you in the UK um, at that stage, um, well, um, I met my wife in, I was still serving with my last couple of years. I met her there, things got serious. And then I said to her, okay, cool. I'm going to leave the army, do this course, become a, you know, um, do close protection. And then she said, fine. She's going to then move to the, um, back home in, to New Zealand. And when I left um, the UK, I went straight to, um, to Baghdad. And from then, every time I'd leave, I'd fly over to New Zealand. 
because we uh, we plan to make New Zealand our home. How did it feel being out in Iraq with, you know, the kind of the the threat compared to what you'd had in Iraq compared to what you had in Afghanistan? Uh, it was somewhat different. We all knew that three was there. We all knew that the, the risk of getting blown up uh, via IED was <laughs> was really high. But um, we're all there, obviously, uh, because we loved the job. We were great at it. Um, but the, it was somewhat different in the sense of you're not there to take the fight to the enemy. You're not there to seek the enemy. You're there to you know, provide close protection to your clients. And that was you know, the, the main objective. Uh, so if there was a shooting in the front, you go the opposite, opposite direction. You, know, you, you basically you're running away from the fight to protect your client. You know, uh, if, a, if it was an IED and the front vehicle would hit the, the IED, and if that front vehicle can still move, you would drive through the contact. You would get out purely to protect your client. Depending on, on the drills and skills of the, of the unit, you, know, you would then um, just get away, basically. So, so we knew it was there, but you weren't out there to go look for them, you know, and we weren't that much of a bigger target in the sense of, yes, we had some armored SUVs, you know, but we, um, it wasn't like we stood out like the American mall, that these yeah. big armored vehicles, uh, and they were driving slow, they were a bigger target, they were sitting ducks, and a lot of the IEDs there was basically for them. Mm-hmm. Well, do, you, do, you, um, do you find that, that switch difficult to make, to go from like, the more from the offensive mindset to the you know, protect the client mindset? Mm-hmm. No, no, I, th- I thought it was awesome. Um, if, for me, it was an easy transition to go from, yeah, find, you know, uh, seek, exploit, um, kill regardless of you know whether season or, or terrain to you've got your clients you know because um, on the course then they would teach you and then at the end of the course you can pick do you want to go being all suited and booted in the in the mercedes-benz and provide protection to your celebrity or do you want to go to the high area either in the middle east or, or africa for me that was the obvious choice uh, to go there you know yes you would stand at a bit more um, instead of having a suit you would have your obviously your plate carrier and um, the ammunition and your, your map and, and, and everything else, you know. But for me, it was a, uh, it was a quite fluid sort of uh, transition to go from that um, way of, of doing things to uh, a bit opposite or different. What was it like for you meeting um, and working with like guys that had been different cat badges? But, you know, different cat badges, different tours, but presumably, you know, a lot of the same kind of places and stuff. Um, again, it was, it, it was easy because we all had the sense or not the sense, had the same background, the same training. So uh, there, was, there was no need to go and retrain. And we all done the CB courses and it was the mutual respect. It was like a new tribe. Um, again, for us, it was it was easy. It, it wasn't a cowboy outfit, although we, we we were then every so often bumping to people, and you can see, yeah, they could all get no idea. Um, but there was the uh, mutual respect, the fact that we've done the tours, and uh, we're professional. Um, we're there for the money, or you're there for for the buzz, or for something else. But it was again, it was it, it was it was easy to actually you know work with them. What do you think about the term? Because obviously we use the term private contractor, private military contractor yeah. and stuff. Do you ever consider yourself um, for, you know, or anybody that does kind of like hired gun work as mercenary? Mercenary. Yeah. Um, no. But funny that you say that. Um, when I left 
the British Army uh, um, information came out from the South African government that made it illegal for South Africans to work in the British Army and do private security. And in a very short time, we were actually classed as mercenaries. Right. Because there were so many South Africans that during the apartheid era, when the that stopped and was in New South Africa, you had a lot of these special forces, community, soldiers, police officers that had loads of um, and many years of experience during the border war what now? So they left the army or the police force and they've done their private security in Africa or the Middle East. And then they will still bring lots of money back. But again, with this issues in South Africa, politics and so on and, and all that, uh, they decided it's, it's illegal, you know. But then again, there were a lot of South Africans that took part in various other um, operations in Africa. Executive outcomes, another big unit. Uh, again, uh, a lot of history with them, a lot of South Africans in that, uh, in that unit. Um, so for a short time it was, but I think for me, yeah, I, I class myself as you know, doing private security. You know? And how long did you do that for? About two and a half, maybe three years, two and a half. Okay, so well, while this is going on then, well, while you're, you know, you're going out there, you're working in Iraq, you're coming back to New Zealand, what's kind of going on with your previous tours, especially Afghanistan, like where's that kind of sitting in your head, if, if anywhere at, at this time? You know, at that stage, everything was packed away in a shoebox. <laughs> Not just in my brain, but I had a, I've got somewhere in my wardrobe here, an actual shoebox with um, my medals, photos. I mean, I don't have my man cape yet, you know, um, when that day comes, you know, I'd still have to sort that out with the boss. And if she's happy for me to have my own man cave, I'm going to have it. But I haven't got any other photos or medals. All that stuff is packed away. So at that stage in my life, it was firmly packed away. My main aim was I'm, I'm doing this job. I'm loving it. I'm good at it. You know, uh, I've made some good friends on it. We're all singing off the same song, song sheet. And um, I'm enjoying it. And it's great money. You know, I had a list I, I, um, where I made, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote down all the money in my account. And ever so after, when the money comes in, I wrote it down. I would see like this in my account, there's $14,000. And then later on, there, there's, you know, 20000 I thought, oh, yes, I'm, you know, I'm, you know it's, it's yeah. for the future. But it wasn't just for the money. The fact that it was a bit of a buzz, you know. Um, you're out there and it's just that adrenaline pumping. You're getting ready to go on patrol. Um, you're prepping the vehicles. You're checking the map, you um, talking to the client and you're telling the client, you brief them up. This is the route out. This is the route back. This is the alternative route. If anything happens, this is the transponder. You know, this is the med pack. Um, and there's the whole thing that goes with it. But at that stage, all the memories, um, all the feelings, thoughts and everything else from uh, the two ruptures and especially Afghan was firmly placed away in that old shoebox, you know. One of the things I've said before, I think I put this in Brothers in Arms. I, I, I think so. I'm not sure. But, I, mm. you know, I, I, I know a lot of lads that are still on the circuit. I'm sure you do, yeah. you do too. Yeah. And I would say, you know, not, like, not all of our guys have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan yet in the sense of they did the tours, they went straight onto the circuit, and just like you probably apartmentalized it, and I did when I was in that period of my life, there's a lot of guys out there that still haven't even taken the Iraq and Afghanistan part out of their brain yet. 
No. Because well, yeah. you can't. For one thing, you can't go and work. You can't go and work. Um, you know, somewhere like Afghanistan, if you've te- you you know because it, when you accept that that kind of warrior part of your life is over, that's when you really start to dissect it. Um, some people more than others, you know. Um, some people reflect more than others naturally, you know. It's just kind of how it is, and obviously experiences matter too. But you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who haven't, you know, they haven't gone through the transition yet because even though security is different to the military, it's kind of like one B to one A. You know, it's yeah. it's like, rather than like you know, it's it, them being something totally, <coughs> totally different and. When that day came for you, when you made the real transition, as in like, no more guns, um, <laughs> no more guns, but more <laughs> importantly, no more working with soldiers. I think that's the kind of, it's nothing to do with, well, not nothing, nothing to do, but I think it's less to do with what your job is and more to do with who you're around all the time. Because essentially you were still living in the barracks, right? You were still yeah, yeah. In, a, in a platoon, essentially. You're still yeah. around soldiers all the time. So what was it like to you when, how did you come to make the decision to leave? And, and then how was like the kind of following few months? Um, I think it was, it was the one night, it was in Baghdad. I was doing a Skype call to my, to my wife. Uh, she was my fiance back then. And the reception wasn't great. Um, a lot of helicopters flying over. So I had my headphones in and I shared the room with another bloke that he was just transiting through. He was going from, um, doing training to a different team, different contracts. So I had no idea who he was, you know. And um, headphones in, and my wife was talking to me, and she held this little stick in front of the camera. I thought, what's this? Is, is this a pen? What, what's that stick? And she's, I said, what, what are you doing? She says, Neville, I'm pregnant. And uh, I thought, yeah, I was, I thought, yes. But I, I thought, I didn't want to show my excitement because this bloke is sitting on his bed there, keeps eyeballing me. No, yeah, yeah, I'm happy, and and, and um, I think that was the moment that I, that I realized, yep, it's you can have to, you know, plan ahead, have an end date, you know, um, and that was the that was the the initial sort of start, and I've done two more contracts after that, but I knew my time was ticking because that stage, um, yeah, we had our first child, and um, I think she was pregnant with our second one. And I thought, it's time to move on. You know, it's, it's, it's time to move on, you know, because um, on the contract, I've seen it so many times, blokes will in, they're there and they miss birthdays, Christmas. And there was one Christmas that I spent with the lads in, in, in Al Hila, which actually is the area where Saddam Hussein, he was born in Al Hila, Iraq, you know. And we had Christmas there. It was, it was weird, you know, because we sneaked sort of alcohol, because it must be an alcohol booze-free contract, but, you know, we're not going to have a booze-free contract. Um, and it's Christmas Eve we're sitting in there these grown men in one room and we're just boozing away and just enjoying it you know but it was yeah there was that stage where I thought yeah it's time it's time to move on time to leave all this behind and you know go and live a quiet family life in bloody New Zealand how did that go then how how was like the different stages if there's been any stages or has it all been the same for you like how was how was like that kind of full civilian life been for you uh, the first six months was uh, horrendous because I, um, I had no job. I uh, submitted my CV to everyone and they keep saying, you're overqualified. And the type of work that I wanted, there was just no need for that. You know, in New Zealand, the people here, they're friendly, they're peaceful, they they green peace, they, they just 
there's no no uh, need for private security. There's a few firms, but um, it, it, they will only take on people that they trust or that they know. And the first six months, yeah, it was it was a bit awkward. Um, and then I thought I, I have to put my pride in my pocket. And <laughs> there was a job open at a local hospital for a security guard guarding property. You know, being the security figure at the door, uh, helping visitors, patients. Uh, staff members, you know, locking up um, offices and all that. So I thought, shit, it's either that or nothing. And I did that for two years. Hated every day, but it was a job, you know. And ironic thing is, is that uh, it was at the same hospital that my wife is working. So when you're doing that then, was there that little voice in your head that's like, go back to Iraq? Or, or were you were you kind of like firmly, <laughs> or were you firm in the decision? Ah, that voice was there every night, you know, especially on the night shift. I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell am I doing here? This is shit. Because the people on that team, um, no proper skills, no drills, nothing. They're just guards. A lot of them, you know, obese, overweight, big, heavy fellas. You know, for them, um, over here especially, if you're a big guard or a big doorman and you have that um, size, uh, people will then you know, respect that and you feel, or they feel intimidating, but it doesn't always work, you know, especially if you've got a young kid that's a, a um, you know, they, they either break in or they get into the hospital and want to go and steal drugs, you know, and they fast on their feet and you've got this big guard that can't run. And then, you know, you might run say 10 paces and then, you know, um, huff and puff, but that's not going to, you know, do us any good, you know? Yeah, every every night, you know, I thought every day that I thought, yeah, go back, go back. It's so easy, you know? Um, and there, there was, I think, maybe one, maybe two occasions where I, I did started to send my CV out again, made, you know, made a few phone calls, you know, sent a few emails out, and a few came back to me and said, Nev, you know, you could be on the flight over tomorrow, you know? There's a place open, you know? Uh, and people that I work with, you know, they were just shooters sitting in the back of the vehicle, and they were now country managers. I thought, Shit, I could be there, but I chose to stay. Do you think you're past that point now of thinking that you ever would go back? Um, it's a yes and no. I think, yes, I'm past the point because I've got my family, I've got these three kids, I've got a house which I own now, purely because of, of the close protection. Mm. Um, but then the, the other bit that, that, that feels, yes, you know, you know you've got the experience you've got the knowledge you're only 45 that's that's fine you can still go but i think deep down you know i've got my kids here and my wife and then uh yeah probably not yeah it's like you said man like i mean i I don't have kids but i've definitely seen the um i know i I did the boats for a while i did the security on the ships for a few years and if there was one knock that people had on the job it was that they were away from their kids um, I notice I say kids that are not wives. I think a lot of them are quite happy to be. <laughs> I think a lot of them are quite happy to be away from them. But like, yeah, it was, it was hard for them being away from the kids, mate. I saw that. And, um, you know, I've seen it in some of my friends. It's definitely like a, a high price to pay, you know, for, I mean, there's some things money can't buy. It's, you know, that really is true. Um, you know, obviously you were, you were in Afghanistan. You went through some hard times out there. And like everybody that's been out there, you kind of leave a little piece of yourself there. I don't think that's a cliche. Or definitely you bring a piece of it back on with you, one or the other, or both. Um, how was the you know, the, the situation last year for you? I mean, it's, it's crazy, mate. It's, this feels like years ago now, but it's not even six months. But the whole, the whole 
draw down to to the Afghanistan, the whole kind of end into it? Like, what was what was that going uh, like that kind of period like for you? Um, initially, when I watched TV, um, it's, everything obviously spilled on Sky News or on, on the TV. It was a bit of a shock, um, to say the least. But then again, I believe we did the best with what we had and uh, with what we could at that time. We really tried best. You know, they, they gave the orders. We did it. And uh, we, I think, made somewhat of a difference back then. But the rest of it was just out of our hands. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't think that the blokes uh, that, that I knew personally died in vain. Um, they volunteered to be there. If we could bring them back, we would. But um, I don't think that. Um, yeah, it's 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 difficult, man. It's 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 real difficult. But I think we we did our best at that time. You know, on, on our tour in two thousand seven uh, with HP winning win in two thousand nine. Um, but then again, uh, not long after that, we left Sangan when the, the Brits pulled out of Sangan. You know, the Taliban took over Sangan. You know, the same areas that we slept from that we fought from was back in their hands. Um, yeah, it's a bitter pull to swallow, you know, but we did what we could. Given, like, the benefit of hindsight, would you do it all again? With the same blokes, yes. Yeah, same man. The same, same blokes, man. Definitely. It's, 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 it's a time, it's an experience that will stay with me forever, man. Yeah, that's, that's what I always tell people as well, man. Like, like you said, I, I believe that... I also believe that people didn't die in vain because everyone was a volunteer and everyone was doing the job that they loved. Everyone was doing their calling. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, like, let's be honest, most of us didn't go out there to actually, for whatever the mission was, I don't think you knew what it was, but like we went out there yeah. because we wanted to do the job. So if anyone's listening out there, you know, that's kind of how I, I, I think about it. I really agree with Nev on that one. Um, let's talk about your writing, mate. Like, how did you get into that? Were you much of a reader as a kid? I was a big reader as a kid. Back then, you know, I was very shy, very introvert, quiet, you know, uh, chubby little kid, keeping <laughs> myself to myself. <laughs> and, um, you know, I had my books that I read and, and that was my escape. Um, and then again, it, it wasn't until I discovered bloody, you know, training in bodybuilding and then I discovered pumping iron. But before I even watched the movie, uh, I read the book that came out, you know, right. it wasn't even Arnie was even on the cover it was um ed corny that was on the cover again I, I got the book it was a second-hand book and i read it from cover to cover and um and i got and i bought various other bodybuilding books but i always had that um that enjoyment from from reading books and then that that sort of fell away i left south africa i went to the uk and it wasn't until i uh wanted to join the british army that i started buying military books you know and i thought okay. yeah okay cool i want to read up i want to know what it feels like you know and then for a very short time i i, I decided to join the parachute regiment and um i failed this uh, this selection at burbright where you had to uh, pick are you going to go for your first option or your second and i think my first option was parachute regiment second infantry which uh, i think was the fusiliers and then third option was uh, like an engineer thing. And, um, but yeah, and I bought various books on the Paris, on Falkland, you know, when I went to uh, the Falklands, um, and on training and various other special forces books. And, and, and I read that and then that sort of stopped after a while. And it was until my tours, you know, when I went to Iraq, you know, there were 
for whatever reason, they had books there. So during the downtimes, you could either eat or you sleep or you train in a shitty um, gym that we had, um, or you read. And yeah, I read various, again, military books. So with, um, with reading then, how has over, over time, you know, like you said, it sounds like you used to read a lot, kind of like, right, this is what I want to do in life, so I'm going to read these books. You know, so I, I want to be a bodybuilder, so I'm going to find bodybuilder books. I'm going to be a soldier, yeah. I'm going to find books about the military. Um, how do you kind of go about choosing what you read now? Um, well, that's it. That's an easy one. Uh, depends um, the people that inspire me. Uh, a lot of now veteran writers or uh, poets from the First or Second World War, or if there's anyone that you recommend or anyone that... Um, the dead reckon collective that they recommend, you know, um, then I would go out and seek that. Uh, but I, again, predominantly uh, would be your um, American, not American, your, your um, veteran writers that would, you know, engage with that. And then every now and again, uh, if I get, can go and do a workshop, I would do a workshop and then they would recommend various other books and then um, you know, I would aim for that. So you mentioned the poetry there, the First World War poets. How did you get, how did you get into that? Um, it was, it wasn't up until a couple of years ago, actually, you know, that people then uh, recommend them and then I would look up. And also when I started heavily with, with my writing and I thought it's, it's good to do research. It, it doesn't have to just, you know, suck things out of your thumb and it's good to go and look into things, you know, uh, because poetry is not just rhyming. You get free verse, you get various other, um, types of, of, of poetry of poems. And, um, so I started looking into that and I realized, shit, there's actually loads there's a, a lot of veterans, um, you know, from the second, first World war, Brits and Americans, you know, that that's written, you know, and, uh, yeah, don't forget the Welsh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and the Welsh, uh, <laughs> that, um, that's, that's, you know, it's known history. That's, and it's beautiful stuff, you know, um, that I've, that I've gone into. Yeah. It's a weird one. The first world war poetry, cause obviously poetry was a lot more mainstream than obviously it is now, mm. but when you're dragging up, hundreds of thousands of millions of troops at an age where that is something where people are, um, you know, treating it the same way that people will treat creative music or something like, you know, it's a lot more mainstream, you know, you're, you're bringing in people. So there was a, a Welsh poet, I don't know if you ever heard of him called Heath Wynn, who um, he won like the, 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 this kind of like they had this, the chair was, I know it's like a shit prize, but they had like the chair for the best, you know, kind of poet and stuff. And he won it. Um, but he was killed. Um, he was killed at Ypres, I think it was. Um, okay. And, um, you know, so he never got to actually kind of claim it and stuff. But he was a poet before he went to the trenches, you know. Yeah. And, and in that kind of like that big dragnet of conscription, there was a lot of people that were already kind of like known. He, like, and not only was he a poet, he was a known poet. Like he was, he was mm. in those kind of Welsh poetry circles and already kind of known. Um, you can actually see um, there's a... A memorial and stuff out to him if, if people ever actually get out to Ypres and stuff as a memorial to the guy and his stuff is you know really good and it's actually yeah um you know but obviously all kind of in welsh and and i think like you said mate one of the interesting things about it is you've got people from different countries all kind of doing it it's like and, mm. and i wonder now you know is there something that the taliban do is there some taliban guys out there because i imagine that poetry is probably something that probably kind of goes like or, or kind of like those kind of verses it's, it's something that probably 
is more fitting to their culture or more, you know, than ours in a lot of way, because they are quite, I don't know if you've ever, you know, if you like the, that kind of culture, I'm trying to think how to phrase it. It still has that almost like that kind of old classical storytelling tradition about it. You know, yeah, yeah. As, as stuff like they don't have Hollywood. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of kind of a lot of spoke. You know, a lot like a lot of spoken word um, storytelling. You know, stuff going on there, mate. So I mean, I don't know mm. if you're up on your Taliban poets and stuff. But I'm sure. I'm not saying like poets as we think of it, but I think there's definitely kind of. I'm sure they probably have their. You know, um, you know their their kind of guys who are in a, into that same similar kind of. Um, you know, storytelling tradition. Um, where was it that the inspiration and, and the kind of motivation came to you to start writing in the first place? Well, um, I kept a journal when, um, when I went to Afghan, uh, but that journal was basically just, just putting down the amount of times we got attacked because mm. for the first 20 days, we were just basically defending the compound or the base, you know, and then at first I would start with, you know, two o'clock, you know, contact I, um, RPG small arms and then I would I would I kept going with that and then I started to f- just write down my thoughts for that day how I felt how shit it was I would my, I might put out yeah it was a beautiful sunset and contact we just got attacked you know and then I, I then I started to write more about how I felt and ideas of of, of life in a very philosophical which I kept everything to myself uh, and, I, and I kept you know um, most of of the time uh, that, that I was there, I, I kept that, that journal. But then, same as all the other photos, my medals, I closed that. They went in the in the shoebox, and it, it won the shoebox. But it wasn't until 2019 that the Dead Reckoning Collective, the American veteran um, company, that they had a ad on social media where they were opening up submissions for uh, their their second anthology of uh, warrior poets. You know, you so you submit stuff if it's good enough then they're going to publish it, you know. And again, there was an instant connection. I thought, shit, I could do that, you know. Um, and I, I wrote three poems. I submitted that. It wasn't until a year and a half later that an email came through and saying, and, and, and they said that two of my three poems um, have been selected and will go in. But um, it, was, uh, it was after that initial, when I clicked cement, uh, submit on the email, that I started to write more. I thought, shit, it's actually, there's a connection. I started to write more, more poems, more, more poetry. And I became more, I think I had more confidence within myself. And I started to, to, to um, uh, put it out on social media, but not on Facebook. Because I still wanted to keep, you know, keep it nice and quiet. I don't want my, any of my, you know, army mates or veteran mates to know that like, I'm writing poetry, you know. Because it's something that's just not known nowadays, you know, especially in Afghan, you know, uh, in, in 2007. And um, it wasn't, I mean, I think uh, Dan Roberts from the Veteran Collective, he came across some of my stuff and he approached me and asked if I want to submit or, or write stuff for his first book. Um, and that's how it all started. And it was, it was a, the floodgates, it was open, you know, and then um, I've done stuff for all three of his books and um, it's been nonstop since. And then I've learned, it was, it was a big learning journey. I'm still learning because literature itself, is or can be quite daunting, especially for me because I'm Afrikaans and a lot of stuff around. I put things out and I think, oh shit, grammar, shit, take that out, change this. Uh, that's Afrikaans work, but I can take that out, you know. And then 
it's it's not that just you have to go and study. You have to learn. I think for me, um, and it's been I've been nonstop since. Do you write in, in more than one language? Um, my journal uh, that I had in Afghan was all in Afrikaans. Okay. Um, I don't know why. Um, nowadays, I, I feel more comfortable doing things in English. Mm. Um, but other way, I, I'm fluent and bilingual in Afrikaans and English. What's your kind of, what, when you were in Afghanistan, what was your inner monologue? Like if you were, if you were alone and thinking to yourself, what would you be thinking in? Uh, you mean like, like language? Yeah, like in your head, you know, when we think in our head. Afrikaans. Know, you, okay, Afrikaans. so that makes this, yeah. yeah, so that makes total sense that your journal would be in Afrikaans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is, yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, um, nowadays, I think I've got a, a bit more life experience that I've picked up since, you know. Um, I've changed a lot, you know. When I served in the British Army, that was different me, you know, uh, and that doesn't define the person who I am today. Um, they were just a small character, you know, that I've played in my, in my life. You know, things changed. I was a different person before I even joined the army, different career. I'm now doing something totally different. Um, and I've since, you know, published some of my poetry. So, um, yeah. Did you um, continue to journal now? Um, yep. So there's times I, I, I might put things down or I might put um, words or sentence. Uh, it could be things that I want to write about or write more. Or I might um, hear a certain song or there might be something that's a, that's a trigger. Mm. And then I might have to thought, yeah, and if I don't have my, my notebook and pen, I put it on, on my phone. Or if I'm at home, straight onto the laptop and I would have a folder where I've got all these, um, again, thoughts or feelings or ideas that were put down. Or if it's an idea on, um, on a, a, a book or a, a poem or, or any ideas I want to eventually use, I would then lock that down. And are they like kind of um, exclusively military ones, or you know, like kind of related to war? Or do you, or, or do you find yourself um, writing and thinking about, you know, like you know, in, in writing terms, subjects outside of that? I would say, yeah, subjects outside of that. It would be uh, it used to be just about my Afghan time or Iraq. Now it's more um, about um, my past, my upbringing, my dad, my mom. Uh, their influences on me um, and my kids, how I feel now, um, the unknown of what they might go through, the fact that you know I'm, well, I won't be here when they're much older. You know, I hope they that they can outlive me. Um, about them, my son, uh, the the differences between the relationship between me and my dad and me and my son. Um, so there's, yeah, I would say there's, there's a big variety of, of things I would put down. Also, but uh, I think I like every so often to write thing about a, a landscape or a sunset and uh, put something dark in there, a dark line that would then draw the reader in. Is it fair to say then that it helps you to make sense out of um, the past, out of your feelings, that kind of thing? Is it a way of kind of ordering your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a big help during our first lockdown as well that we had in, in New Zealand, you know. A lot of the stuff that's in uh, Darren's first book, The Veteran Collective, is what I wrote um, during the lockdown. And that was a massive help, you know. It was a stage where everything just locked down, you know. Um, I was working from home. I had no gym. And, and the gym, for me, is a place I can go and, and focus on me physically, mentally. And that was taken away. And in the writing, again, uh, I think saved me. 
Um, even though yeah, I was drinking quite a lot that <laughs> that lockdown um, <laughs> uh, every night, and um, that helped tremendously, you know. And then that's when I started to write more about my kids, you know, uh, my wife, um, and again my my past. But again, I think back then I was very hesitant to to write about my past because I think back then I was still worried about what if that particular person would read it and what they might say or what they might think, or they might interpret as in it's negative, or they won't see what I feel and what I'm seeing, you know, but I think I'm, I'm over that. And if I want to write something, I'm going to write it. You know? How are you over that? Like what makes you, what has changed in you that you, you don't worry about that now? Um, confidence, life experience, I would say um, that I, I can't control what other people think um, and what they say. They can do it regardless. I can control how I react to it. Um, and that's helped a lot. You know, I'm going to control on, or I'm going to focus on what I can control. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing, you know, um, and how I react. I could react in a very negative way and say, oh, this is bullshit. Why don't you like it? You know, why don't you like my reading? I might talk to my wife and she might interpret it as something different or she might look at it and I might, expected to say oh this is wonderful this is amazing <laughs> yeah. and then and then she'll say no this is actually dark shit this grammar yeah this is wrong this spelling mistake and i'm thinking shit i've already put it out on, on instagram mm-hmm. you know and then it's how but i need to react differently it's like oh excellent well thank you for your input yeah. you know i like it thanks for helping you know um i would say that's the reason why is that i can't control i, I just cannot it's it's i can't you know uh, and if they interpret in a different way, then, 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 then so be it, you know, whether it's, it's um, someone close by reading the stuff or a family member uh, or my wife. Well, my wife, she, uh, she's read a few, but not many. So, yeah, mate, I, I say it to everyone with the writing, you're never going to please everyone. So just please yourself. Like that's the only yeah. thing you can do with writing um, because everyone will have a different take on it. Some people love something, some people hate it. Most people will be in the middle somewhere. Um, But um, no, it's uh, it's funny that you can say that because when you show someone you're writing, and like, obviously we've all been debriefed, and I mean debriefed, Breckenand in the military, you know. (laughs) But it never felt that personal. Whereas like with your writing, because it's a bit of your soul in there, it, 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 it takes a while. I'm like, look, mate, I'm still at the point now where people... I'll get notes and my first reaction is, don't know what they're fucking talking about. <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I kind of see the point. And then you yeah, eventually yeah, come yeah. round to it and you're like, oh, you know what? These changes will make it better. Um, but it, but that gets, like you say, man, that gets easier over time because like at first it is like, it's a cliche, but it's true. You are literally bearing your soul when you, because like, I think as well, what you put out first is always your most raw stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And then over time, like, because you've got the big, meaty, nasty thoughts out of you by that point. And then don't get me wrong, like, you're, I'm totally with you, mate. Like, the beginning of lockdown, I was just like, glug, 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 fuck it. This one don't work anymore, mate, after that. And it's just like, you know, there are those periods where you probably will get, like, that resurgence of the raw stuff. But yeah. I don't think you're ever going to match what comes out of you when you first, cause you, you're talking at that point, you know, decades of stuff that's going to be coming out through that pen or mm. phone or whatever people are using. Um, 
and and then like you know as you get further down things you know do kind of become more refined what are the kind of like the big questions in your life and and in in your mind at this stage of your life um in what sense and and is it just like so like i'll just give you like so i think a lot about death now mate but not in yeah. the sense, not in the yes. sense of like, oh, I'm gonna die. Like, well, actually, that is kind of part of it. But like, not in yeah. the death that we used to think about when we were on tour, because then you used to think about death in very practical terms, right? As in, like, yeah, yeah. better yeah. make sure I got my tourniquets in my pockets. <laughs> um, yeah. But now I, I I think about consciousness and stuff like that a lot, mate. And um, I do think about like, where do we go? Yeah. Uh, no, same, I, same, yeah. same. Yeah, I think about um, shit. Will I wake up tomorrow? Um, what if I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's all my, um, it's everything in order in case, you know, what about my kids, you know, um, will they be okay? Um, and, and, and thinking, am I doing a good job? Um, thinking about your consciousness, um, thinking about will my soul go somewhere? You know, what's going to happen with that? You know, have I got a soul? Um, I'm more thinking about that type of thing than, as you said, in the practical sense, okay, I've got a tourniquet, you know, is that an, an ID? Uh, my thought process is much different to when it was in 2000, you know, uh, four, five, and six, and seven. And has the kids been a big part of that? Massive, massive. You know, they changed your life. You know, I'm my firstborn, and I've got, you know, obviously three kids, and they changed a lot. A lot of it is, shit, I want to do my best. You know, every bit that I, that I, miss i i can't have back you know if there's a time that they come up to me and i'm tired i'm grumpy as hell and now my little one comes up and she taps me on my leg dad can you help me with this do you want to go and play i and then i might be a bit grumpy and then i will make an effort to go and play you know or if i say no just just, just leave me alone i'm busy and she walks away and you could see that that just destroyed her day a moment she just wants to be with her dad or my boy might come over to me and say dad can we go to the park you know, and then I'll be thinking of all the excuses of not to go out, you know, and all he wants is just to go to the park, kick the ball around and that's it, you know, and then I would make effort into spending as much as I can with them um, and then helping them, guiding them. And then a lot of stuff that I've been, you know, been putting pen to paper is for them. So eventually, um, when they're old enough, if they want to know more, if I'm still alive, then they, they can obviously ask me or they can, they can read that, what I've been through, you know, whether it be uh, in a novel, in a memoir or a, or a poetry book. So I'd be interested to know if you think the same way as I do, mate, because I, I really agree with you that it's so important to be present for moments, right? And it's something that, like, I struggle mm. with and I think maybe if you're, if you're somebody that's naturally inclined to write, it's quite natural to be outside of your head. So to be present can be quite hard. But also I find the more that I try to be like, remind myself like, oh, you're not going to get these moments again. The more then I start panicking like, oh my God, I've only got like so much time left in my life. Or like you said, I might not wake up tomorrow. So like, do you find the same, mate? Like I I have this really hard time balancing being present with totally fucking melting down (laughs) over like how short life is. Yeah, I think it's if, if, if I overthink things, you know, if, if I focus too much on, on that, when I think I could enjoy this moment now because you might not have the moment again, you know, and, and I focus too hard on that, then I start to freak out. 
And then I just overthink things and I get anxiety. But instead of just going with the flow, if my kids, yeah, and they want to go play, go with them and enjoy that moment, you know, or if I've got an idea and I want, want, and I want to put that idea on, on paper, you know, do that, you know, or if there's an opportunity for, for something, go for it. Because I've had so many opportunities over my lifetime, which I never went for. And there's been a, been a few which I regret. Or there might be time where my wife might, might say something and I'm not in the moment. I'm, I'm thinking about other stuff. You know, I need to be in the moment, you know. But if I overthink all this shit, that's where I feel it's forced and then it just doesn't work. So it's, it's really kind of, in a way you don't even have to make that many decisions. Just like, let the kids make the decision. <laughs> like, it, it, essentially, like yeah. just ha- kind of have that attitude of like, right, well, if the kids come and ask her to go play, I'm going to go play. And, and yeah. like, you, almost like taking some of that um, stress for making all the decisions all the time and just being like, okay, right. Well, in these situations, if the kids come and go and ask her to do that. And like you said, yeah. mate, like you can put it, um, so kind of to relate that to anybody, let's say there's a young soldier listening to us to talk right now, probably thinking like these two fucking salty, crusty old vets <laughs> talking about SLRs. No, not that old. Um, but yeah, if you're a young soldier listening, if someone says, we need someone to do a course, just stick your hand up and go, all right, cool, I'll do the course. Don't overthink it. Yeah. Stick your hand up, do it. Yeah, exactly. Just go for it. Because as soon as you sit then you overthink things. Oh, should I go for it? Should I not? You know, someone's told me, don't volunteer for shit. It's, don't worry about them. Worry about you. You know, if, if you think it's going to benefit you in the in the next couple of years or the, or the long run, go and do it. You know, it's not going to be uh, this twelve month, you know, twelve year long course. It's it's a short while. You know, you go and do it. You know, tick in the box, move on. Mate, you mentioned lockdown and drinking and stuff earlier on. There, what, what's your kind of, you know, um, position on? when it comes to like alcohol and, and, and things like, you know, things like that in life now, is it, is it a help to you, a hindrance or kind of like, what, where are you, where are you with that kind of thing now? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a hindrance if you go out, well, for me personally, and if I consume it every night and it's large amounts of, of alcohol, you know, instead of having a quiet, you know, innocent one drink, um, as opposed to, you know, drinking as much as I can every night, thinking oh, it's locked down, you know, I can sleep in, um, I could do homeschooling with the kids after lunch, you know, um, that's an issue for me. For me, and I, I, I would rather have it at hand at night where the kids are asleep and I can write and I would then put some you know, thoughts, ideas uh, to paper and I can have a, a one drink. I, I, I can happily have one drink, you know, and then um, edit the stuff in the morning. Um, so do you, do you feel like it helps you write? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes that combined with, with music, it will, a uh, certain sound, it will, uh, it will trigger something and then I can smell Iraq or I can smell Afghan or if I close my eyes, I'm instantly back at a certain time and, 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 and place. Um, whether it be in a Sanger, whether it be patrolling, whether it be driving in a, in a, in a snatch, I'm top cover and that stench, that smell and the heat hits you in the face, you know, I could just sit there and close my eyes. And that's because a certain sound or a, a music, you know, music is a big thing for me. That, that's helped tremendously um, with, with writing as well. You know, sometimes none of that works. And then I find myself, I'm forcing myself to, to write things and then it's just a crock of shit and then I just delete and I don't do it. But if it's a writing prompt, which uh, the likes of Dead Reckoning Collective, they've done a lot 
the PP Apartheid Book Club, which I think I'm the only Brits there. Oh, um, mate, I, I love, I love Tom. I love Tom. That's love, so amazing. Love, love, what, he's love, love yeah. what he's doing. The whole thing yeah. is amazing, you know, and I'm part of the, their book club mm-hmm. and they've got a writing prompt. And then um, every so often, uh, once a month, I think they've got a, uh, we, a, a live Zoom session mm-hmm. and then uh, they discuss the book and also the author of the book is there as well. And you can ask questions, all that. Uh, but yeah, it's um, music as well. But then with the, with the writing prompt, that helps because it's almost like that, that's your objective. You have to come and, and reach the objective. And then a lot of my stuff, which I'm happy with, I like, was because of, the, of a writing prompt. But if I sit there one eye and I try to force the alcohol down and I try to force the music to come up with an idea, then it doesn't work. Then I just leave it. And then I go sit with the kids or I just watch a uh, Netflix with, a, with my wife. You know? But there's other times where they might say something or they've done something and that's um, initiate or it was a trigger from my you know, um, life as a kid when I was their age. You know? And then I had to start, you know, I just start writing down. It just, it, it, it flows for whatever reason. I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to ask why. I'm just going to go with it and, and just fill the page. So when you say music, mate, are we talking about like songs that you remember from tour? That will, or like, is it is it kind of like music from that period when you were away and stuff that will get jog your memory? And there's a small minority, a small a small selection of the songs that I've listened to, um, yeah. But the rest is all um, different songs, different bands. Could be a band from the UK or from South Africa or, or a local Kiwi band. Um, it just, I think, the beat, um, sometimes the lyrics. But uh, no, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, stuff that I've listened to on tour, a very, very small selection of stuff. Mate, obviously, I know, you know, like me, times in the last two years probably not been the most fun ever, <laughs> to be quite honest. But what are you kind of like most optimistic about this year? What are you most looking forward to? I'm looking forward to them bloody easing all these restrictions in New Zealand. Um, because every time they just change the goalpost or they dangle the carrots and you think, okay, I'm not going to be selfish because they keep saying, don't, you know, be selfish. Don't do it just for you. Do it for the, everyone else. And I, I just really hope that they could just, you know, change that. And so we could just get along and move on and just enjoy life but this stage this this you know underlying anxiety the feeling like shit okay cool uh, I, i'm i don't agree with some of it i don't like it you know I, I came to a point last year where i had to make a decision do i do something or do i lose my job you know um and i've got a mortgage to pay i've got kids and, and all that and um yeah i'm just looking forward to it it being a bit easier to say the least yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I'm totally with you. And, you know, I think it's very easy for a lot of people to say, like, someone should do this or someone should do that. And, you know, um, but realistically, people have kids, people have families, you know, people have to make decisions that don't sit well with them. And I, I think that's kind of something that comes to responsibility, isn't it? As a lot of the times you have to make decisions that aren't necessarily the ones that you'd want to make. But, you yeah. know, that's kind of part and parcel of being responsible for, other, you know, for, for other people. And I know, like, a lot of people have had to swallow pride and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's um, – I, I, really I really hope we are coming to the end of it, mate. Um, you know, I think that 
I, I always thought this thing would have a shelf life because um, basically anything, and, and I'm not saying lies in, I'm not denying that COVID is not real. Or it definitely is real. I fucking had it. But it, it was never what they said it was. And if anyone's ever been in a relationship and you start telling lies, it's going to come crashing down at some point. You can't continuously lie. Like evidence is evidence. Um, experiences are experiences. And I, I, you know, I always thought this thing had a shelf life and I'm hoping that we are starting to see, um, you know, the end of it now, mate. And I think what's kind of good, like if uh, for New Zealand, Australia, Canada, if Britain and other countries turn around and go back to normal, then that then is again, starts to unravel, you know, like you can't have one or two Western countries that go back to normal and the others don't because those people will start to say, well, hang on, like what's going on in Britain? They've got the same virus as we have. How come they, how come they're back to normal? You know? So I hope, I I hope, I hope we get past it, mate. Um, Fingers crossed, man. And any final words to the, to the listeners, mate, to the noble listeners? Noble listeners, uh, I would say just enjoy life. You know, don't worry too much about tomorrow, man. Just be in the moment, enjoy uh, the time. Um, and, uh, Listen to uh, the veterans, veteran state of mind um, and uh, listen to his podcast. Cheers, mate. Hey, we'll, we'll have to meet up. I think it's probably the easiest place for us to meet up would be at PB Abate. <laughs> yeah. probably, probably about halfway, mate. I, I'd love yeah, to yeah. go out there, mate. It just does look, um, does look absolutely incredible out in. It's Montana, right? I think. The, Montana, yeah. yeah. I said yeah. to my wife, as soon as restrictions ease up and, and I can, you know, uh, I can fly out and, and the borders are open and uh, I'm, I'm going to go there and, and see what it's like, you know, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, we'll have to try and coordinate it, mate, because I'd love to, love to meet up with you in person. I've got something in my eye. <laughs> Fuck it, it's definitely <laughs> not here. It's not here. <laughs> um, mate, Getting soft. Yeah, yeah mate, I fuck it. Hey, tell you what. Actually, uh, you know what? Let me ask you this before we finish. Are you, are you yeah. a bit of a softy these days? Um, what with fatherhood, everything you've been through, the military and stuff? Like... Where you watch on a scale of one to ten, if you watch uh, Band of Brothers, how likely are you to start crying? I would say about an eight. As in, like on the likelihood scale. Yeah, I would yeah. say that. Yeah, uh, purely of what I've been through, I've got kids. My whole thought process is different. Um, yeah, I would say about an eight. Man. I think it changes, mate, doesn't it? Because when you you kid, when when I was like, like I say a kid, but when you're a young man. You're, when you watch something like the Pacific, you're thinking about you and your mates in that position. So it's kind of exciting and stuff. But now that I'm older, and I know now when I look back on something like the Pacific, I'm like, those were 18, 21-year-old guys. And you're starting to see them as, oh, that's actually someone's kid. Or that's, that's, a, that's a guy that never got to be a dad. And all that kind of stuff. And I, I think that's why it becomes more emotional, mate. Because you're just watching all these blokes just get cut down, and you're like, "What? He, like, he was just—he was fucking 18 years old, mm. you know? Those guys were 18 years older because you know, you know what they. And, and then the more you get to appreciate life, the more it obviously saddens you when you see and think about people who had their lives cut short. Because you're like, "Fuck, this is this is amazing. Life is amazing." And oh, yeah. you know, like you and me right now, mate. We've lived twice as long as a lot of World War II, World War I soldiers did. Um, and that kind of blows my mind because I don't feel like I've been here that long. 
you know do you know what i mean mate so yeah mate i i can like um you know I, have you seen that movie 1917 yeah i did yeah a few what weeks do, back. what do you think of it because I, I i haven't watched it and i'll tell you why in a second but what, what do you think of it um i thought it, it was quite amazing um i think they they what well, they could have um brought in a few more characters you know the, the movie i think focused on these two characters you know um from beginning to end you know uh, yeah it was was well shot the fact that they've had a different technique of using a one shot continuously without cutting and i think uh, that was quite amazing um yeah i think it was a it was a, uh, a good film yeah uh, the reason i haven't watched it mate so i just thought just go get upset watching this really what's the point <laughs> like just literally just get upset um because I read like I do, re- I I try and read like a lot of First World War memoirs and stuff, and you yeah. know it's just like fucking hell. I mean, you can't wrap your head around it. You really can't. No. You no. know, you, no. you it's just too the scale of it is too massive. You know, mm. to get your head right. Even just the the take away all the the actual murdering and killing and everything. Just living in a fucking trench. Let alone anything else, mate. Just living in a muddy trench. Yeah. Like fucking with no no Gore-Tex. No <laughs> no no nothing. Just in a fucking freezing cold trench. And and or or a boiling hot trench. Maybe you've scraped out the ground if you're in you know in the Anzacs or whatever and in Gallipoli in, in those places. And I don't know, mate. I think um you know, I was talking to Joe about this when we did the Ransom Bounce this morning. I just, you just kind of come to realize how many human beings have had absolutely horrible last days on Earth. Yeah, um, and they're young as well. You know, if you look at the young. amount of people, you know, uh, in, in the Pacific um, in the First and Second World War, you know, uh, the soldiers that, that died. And then, you know, look at the other innocent, you know, civilians that died as well. The sheer numbers, um, it just blows my mind. Let's finish, actually, Mila. I mean, let me pick your brain on one more thing before we go. Mm. Remembrance. You're from South Africa. Yeah. Um, what is remembrance in South Africa like? And then how is it going to differ or how is it similar to what we have in the UK? Um, growing up in South Africa, it, was, um, it wasn't a thing that I can remember that I've done a lot. Um, I know my dad, he, yeah, he, he, they had events with the police force that they took part in. But I think back then I was just too young, uh, too naive to actually understand uh, why uh, they had that on, you know. And it wasn't until I went to the UK. And I remember before I joined the army, they had a, um, one on. And I took various photos in London, you know, and, 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 and um, that struck me. And then obviously when I joined up, um, it was different, but as a kid growing up, um, that was never a thing. Um, yeah, they had events with my dad, with his police force, uh, with, with the unit, but it wasn't a thing that, um, that we, that was part of, um, back then, but obviously it changed over the years, um, when I wanted, when I joined the police, uh, the, the, the army. All right. Well, Nev, thanks so much for the last Yo. couple of conversations, mate. Really enjoyed it. And, um, welcome back anytime, mate. And if anything I Thank you. do to help promote the books or anything like that, let me know, mate. And um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And listeners, thank you for being here. Check out Nev's social media. Um, I've linked everything down in the show notes, the books down there, linked up down there, all that kind of stuff. And also subscribe to the newsletter uh, because I'll recommend books in there. Um, 
not like not just my own, not just Nevs, all kinds of books, everything, everything down in there. If you're interested in that stuff, sign up to the email, and it also allows us to keep in touch when I get kicked off Instagram, which I've I've had two posts pulled off there today. So no, actually, I'm on two or three. I've had at least two pulled off there today. We we are on the naughty step. Uh, but bro, thanks so much for coming on, mate. I'll catch you soon. Oh, thank you. Cheers, man. Thank you Cheers, so much. Man. Thanks, mate. Dream to all of us, a dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle